times through the prophets in these last days, he's now spoken in the Son. His final word, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Very God of very God, Son of man, Son of God. Uh, what I want us to notice as I begin reading is how uh, the, the pastor, the preacher there in Hebrews sets about to address the issues. You'll notice that he begins with doctrine. He doesn't begin with exhortation, right? We might be tempted to begin with, well, here are five things you need to do, right? That's how we often counsel people when they come to us. I'm struggling with this or that, you know. But notice what the writer to the, the Hebrews does. He puts before them the beauty and the goodness and the glory of the Son of God, right? As they're taken up, as it were, right? That's the perfect antidote to every spiritual ailment that the Christian has. Is not a list of rules, but the beauty and the glory that is our God as he's revealed in Jesus Christ. So I just think that's very helpful for us to think about as we are ministering to others that we're always putting before the people the beauty of God, the glory of God, his goodness, his truth, and all of the many facets that comes to us as it's revealed in the word of God. So let's listen now as I read. Again, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Long ago, or formerly, at many times, in many parts, and in many ways, or different ways, different modes, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, that is the days since the incarnation of Christ, He, God, has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed, or placed, the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint or representation of his nature. And he, the Son, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he, the Son, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's go and ask God to come and bless and give the light, the illumination, to understand what he's revealed through his apostle, through his prophets here in his holy word. Let us go and seek God's face. Our Lord and our God, we come to you. We come to you in this final word, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the definitive complete and perfect eternal word that you have spoken in the end of the ages in our Lord Jesus Christ. We come, Father, as hungry children. We come knowing that we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children when they ask. When they ask for for bread, we don't give them a stone. How much more will you give the Holy Spirit to us who are in union with Jesus Christ now, that we might understand, that we might not just be hearers of the word, but we might be doers, not just doing things, but resting, doing by resting in Jesus Christ and his sufficiency, and in this final word, knowing that in him we are accepted, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law and its curse has been exhausted in the cross of Jesus, and that his perfect life has now been rendered for us, that he lived the life that we failed to live, and he died the death that we deserve to die, and we rest in him, and we behold his beauty, and we pray and ask that you would 
Help me, Lord, with my stammering tongue to proclaim the glories of Jesus, that your people might be encouraged, that the proud might be humbled, and the bruised reed and the smoldering wick might be encouraged. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last week, I introduced this letter, this sermon, if you will, epistolary sermon, as it's referred to, under the theme of Jesus is better. Jesus is better, Jesus is superior to all that came before him, to all that came before him in Genesis to Malachi, to all that God revealed in his holy word in the Old Testament canon, Jesus is better. Well, today in verses 2 to 3, the preacher, the author, lays out seven reasons, I'm going to give them to you this morning, seven reasons why Jesus is superior, why Jesus is better than all that came before him. Again, remember now, these are folks who are struggling. They're struggling not to the point of the shedding of blood yet, but they're being persecuted. They've undergone economic hardship and in social ostracization, right? They're being put aside, and it's becoming very difficult to follow the Lord Jesus. And they're thinking about going back to the known, because the known is safe, and the known was the old covenant, Moses, and all that that included, the rituals, the types, and the shadows, because there's safety there. There's safety in the known. But the preacher is laying out to them, oh, beloved, all of that pointed forward, looked forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's final word, his prophetic word incarnate in Jesus Christ. So he gives us Seven reasons why Jesus is better. Not only is the Son better because he's God's final prophet, as we saw last week, I'm just going to give you these as we go along, and I'll try to repeat them as we go. First, the Son is better because he's the heir of all things. He's superior to all that preceded him because he's the heir, right? To him belongs the inheritance. In verse 2, we're told, In these last days he has spoken to us, by his son, whom he appointed or placed the heir of all things. Now, this is incredibly thick, right? If this were a steak, it'd be a filet mignon at the finest steakhouse in all the land. And I don't know where that is, but just imagine what that steak must be like. Theologically speaking, this is the filet. This, this statement right here, being the heir... So I want to take just a moment to explain a little bit of the Old Testament background because I think that's going to help us understand the majesty and the splendor and the glory that is this appointed heir, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the theme of sonship was huge. We know from Luke 3.38 that Adam, the first, is called the son of God. We know from Exodus 4:23 that Israel, the nation, the corporate body, is designated God's son. We also know in 2 Samuel 7:14 that the Davidic king, David's son, is also known as God's son. And the implication here in Hebrews 1 is that Jesus is the better Adam. That Jesus is the truer Israel. That Jesus is the Davidic king. He's the greater king, the greatest king, the faithful son of the covenant Lord. 
that the entirety of the Old Testament is longing for and pointing forward to, that he in himself is Messiah, God's Son, in whom all the hopes of God's people rest. Messiah as messianic hope, as Son of Man, as God's Son. And yet, as we read the entirety of Hebrews 1, as we'll get to the rest of it, Lord willing, next week, but even today, we see that Christ's messianic sonship transcends even these categories. Though David, though rather Christ is David's greatest son, he is also the unique and eternal son of God. The very one who shares in the very nature of God. He's of the same substance of God, of God the Father and God the Son. One God in three persons, same in substance, equal in power and glory. He tells us in verse 2 that it is this Son who has been appointed or placed by God as heir over all things. You see, all things belong to him, both in heaven and on earth, the material And the spiritual, all things, all things, whatever you can think of, is under the sovereign management, authority of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, this messianic son, this eternal son of God. All things, all authority, Jesus says in Matthew 28, has been given unto me. Therefore, go. You see, if we don't get that 28.18 right, We're not going to get the rest of it right. All authority has been invested into him. He is the messianic king. Beloved, I believe the author, the preacher here in verse 2, is zeroing in on God's specific promise given to the Davidic king, the Messiah, in Psalm 2. We're going to see this next week because that's next week's Old Testament reading. Psalm 2, verse 8. Remember where the Lord said this? To the Messiah, to his son, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. They belong to the son, to the messianic son, the greater son of David, the truer Israel. You see, the preacher wants us to see that this promise is now in these last days been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see, saints... As the God-man Messiah, Christ is the heir of all things. The dominion originally promised to Adam in Genesis 1 and lost in his fall is now secured by the better Adam, by Jesus Christ, the true Israel, David's greater son, the Messiah himself, the last Adam. And while at present we don't see Jesus And we don't see him owning all things. We don't see him sovereignly reigning all things, at least not empirically so. We see him with the eyes of faith in the Word of God, but we don't see it manifest concretely, carnally, if you will. We know, though, that Christ, when he returns, his ownership of all things will be visibly manifest for all to see. You see, on the last day of human history, When the curtain is opened and the cast comes on the stage, and then the writer also comes on the stage on that day, we're told every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, both in heaven and on earth, that Jesus Christ 
is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, Christ is better because he is heir. And if you thought it couldn't get any better, right, that's great. That's marvelous and wonderful in our eyes, right, the psalmist says. Get this. Church, get this. In Romans 8, 17, we're told as believers, we are now joint heirs. We're co-heirs in Jesus Christ. We're now seated with him in heavenly places. Well, I don't believe that, Pastor. I have a hard time putting my head around that. Well, welcome to the club. God said it. God is not a man that he should lie. It's true. God defines reality, not my empirical senses. God does in his word. We take every thought captive to the obedience of this word, both in life and practice and in doctrine. You see, Christ, by the virtue of his life, death, and resurrection, inherits all that the Father promised him, and by grace makes us co-heirs with him, that we might share in his possession of and rule over all of creation. Just like Adam was promised, but Adam forfeited in the fall. This is how we make sense of Psalm 8. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. What is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man, that thou hast made him a little lower than the angels? You have crowned him with glory and splendor. You see, the last Adam, the true Israel, the, the great Messiah, brings humanity in all of its fullness as heirs of all of creation in union with Jesus Christ. Beloved, should this truth not color and affect everything about us, who we are, who we belong to, right in the south, I remember going down there, going to seminary, asking, well, who's your daddy? What school did you go to? Right? They want to know about my pedigree. Well, let me remind them, according to Romans eight 17, I'm an heir. King of kings and the Lord of lords, a co-heir in Jesus Christ. I can hold my head high. I can walk with dignity and humility, knowing that he's my father. God's my father. Jesus Christ, my elder brother, and the Holy Spirit's my portion. You see, that's who we are, church. Shouldn't this color us and frame and be the paradigm upon which we operate? How we spend our money. How are you spending your money? As an heir? the kingdom of God, and your time, your energy. Jesus is the heir of all things. We are co-heirs in him. He's better because he's heir. Well, secondly, the son is better because he is, get this, get this, church, he's the creator of all things. He's the creator. Yes, that's right. He's the creator. Jesus of Nazareth is the creator of all things. Verse 2 continues. Through the Son, he also created what? The world, the ages, out of nothing. Ex nihil out, right? Out of nothing. There was nothing. There was the triune God. And he spoke, and there was creation. He did this through the Son. He created all things. From the smallest particle to the largest galaxy. Everything that was created by the Son was created in Jesus Christ, God's final word. No mere creature could do this. Very reminiscent of John's prologue there in John 1, 1 through 3, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. 
That preposition is so illustrative. I wish you could see it on a board. Big, cir- big, big circle with an arrow going right through it. Through the Son of God, He created all things. He created them for His own glory. Out of nothing, the Son created everything. Right? All things that were made were made through Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. You see, the early church understood that the one who was crucified in Jerusalem just decades earlier than when this was written is now praised as the one who created the world. Jesus is better because he's heir of all things. Jesus is better because he's the creator of all things. Thirdly, Jesus is better because he is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the radiance of the glory of God, right? Who's been appointed heir? Who created everything? The answer is in verse 3. He, the Son, is the one in whom is the radiance of the glory of God. What the preacher's doing here now, some of us who are married know what this is like. You go to get that engagement ring for your fiancé. You go to the jeweler. He brings you to the counter, and you got all these diamonds sitting there. What does he do? He takes out the black velvet. Bam! He throws it right there on the counter. And then what does he do? He starts putting the jewels right on the black velvet. Right? So you have the juxtaposition of the brilliance and the splendor and the glory of the diamond with the black velvet. That's what he's doing right here. He's laying it out. He wants us to see because he doesn't want us to drift. He wants us to see that God's final word is better. It's more radiant. It's more, more majestic, more glorious. Right? In the face of Jesus Christ, all the glory of God shines brilliantly. Just as the sun's rays come forth from it, shining brightly down on the earth on a cold winter's morning, right? You go outside, particularly in March. I love March. But you go out in winters trying to still fight to hold on, but spring is right there, wrestling. Who's going to win the day? The day holds so much promise. It's been frost falling the night before. It's all over the car windshields. But the sun in all of its brilliance and all of its glory is shining down with its mighty rays. And you feel it on your neck and you say, wow, what a strong star in our solar system. You see, that's the point here. That's the vision. Like Jesus is like those rays, those, those beams of light just showing forth the glory that is the Father. Just as the beams show forth the glory that is the Son of light. This morning you're asking yourself, maybe you're here, you don't know Christ. There's some faces out there I don't know. Maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you've been here 40 years. And you're still asking the question, what is God like? Who is his son that I may know him? The only way to answer that question correctly is by looking at the glory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, a fancy Latin word, the usios, the same substance of the Father, the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son, being of one substance. Saints, the Son is better because He's the heir, He's the creator, He's the radiance of the glory of the Father. Fourthly, the Son is better because He's the exact imprint of God's nature. The preacher goes on. The Son is the exact imprint of God's nature. The Son is the exact representation 
Father, of the same nature of the Father and the same substance, such as an image made by a seal like that found on a coin, right? Like a ring you would take and put it into hot wax to make the image. So the Son images the exact nature of the Father. You've seen Him, you've seen the Father. You see, beloved, Jesus shares the divinity of the Father as the second person in the Trinity. While no human son is the exact representation of his father, there may be a close resemblance. You have your father's eyes. You have your father's forehead. You have your father's jawline. It could be close, but that's not what the writer to the Hebrews is saying here. He's saying that Jesus Christ has the exact image of the father, the exact representation of the father. He is of one substance with the father. Philip asked Jesus, the Lord Jesus, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus answered Philip in John 14, Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You see, in Jesus Christ, the invisible God became visible. Jesus Christ, the infinite God, clothed himself with finite humanity. He clothed himself. It was incarnation not by subtraction. It was incarnation by addition. He added humanity, right? A nature. So he has two natures in one person in Jesus Christ. He's better because he's heir. He's better because he's creator. He's better because he's the radiance of the glory of God. He's better because he's the exact imprint of God's nature. And fifthly, he's better because he's sustainer. He's upholder of all things. The author tells us in verse 3, He, the Son, upholds the universe by the word of His power. Here we see that the Son, whom we were just told in verse 2, is the creator of all things, is the one who upholds all things. He upholds it by the word of His power. He's no absentee creator. He upholds, He preserves, He sustains, He governs the universe. We're told that the Son upholds all things. Paul will pick up on this in Colossians 1.17, in that in Christ all things hold together. Why do molecules hold together? Why? Because Jesus Christ is heir. He's the exact image of the Father. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the creator of all things. He's holding all things together by the word of his power. Right? Some of us understand physics. We don't understand why molecules hold together, why atoms don't fly apart. Well, we do know. Yes, we have revelation in the Word of God that, that every molecule in the universe is held together by the triune God in the Son, by the Word of His power. That's how it's held together, right? He does this through His Word. What's interesting here, right, it's if the sun did not continue to hold things together by the word of his power, it would all vaporize. It would disintegrate. The word here to uphold conveys not only the idea of sustaining or upholding, it also conveys the idea of carrying. Right? The Son of God is carrying. Well, what is he carrying? He's carrying all of human history to its intended goal, to its intended purpose, that there are no accidents in creation. There are no accidents in life. All of creation is sustained by him, 
and all of history is being carried by him to God's intended goal and purpose. You see, he preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions. You see, this doctrine of providence is a pillow, as the Puritans would say, that you can lay your head on, right? Knowing that God is sustaining, he's upholding, he's carrying all of history. Not only history, generally speaking, he's carrying, he's upholding, he's carrying you in his hands. He's carrying your history. He, he knows what he has for you, the days that are before you yet to come. He, he knows them, and he's there. And he's upholding them, and he's carrying them. Well, sixthly, the son is better because he made purification for sins. Now, you could say in some ways, you could have a sermon just on this. Just this one truth, right? He's heir, he's creator, he's the radiance of the glory, he's the exact imprint Right, he's sustainer. Now we come sixthly. He's better because he made purification for sins. The son who is heir, we're now told, made purification for sins. The ESV translates this participle here as making purification. You could translate it, right? It's an heiress participle. You could translate it having purged or having made pardon. Beloved, the Son of God, God's final word, made atonement for our sins. What the writer to the Hebrews wants his original readers to understand, and what he wants us to understand, is that when Jesus Christ, on Good Friday in John 19.30, at 3 p.m. in April, it's believed, when he said it was finished, you know what that means? It means it's finished. He's made purification for your sins. You're no longer in a state of condemnation. You're now in a state of justification in union with Jesus Christ. You are righteous in his sight. It is finished. The sins that defile you and make all of us morally unclean before God have been wiped away, have been paid for in full. Beloved, it is here where we see the glory of the Son most clearly, where His divine nature shines the brightest, here in the highest act of worship ever rendered when the Son of God on the cross suffered and bled to save sinners. That is the highest point in all of human history. That's the highest act of obedience ever rendered by any human being was when the God-man, Jesus Christ, laid down his life in the place of sinners. Saints, what works can you boast of today? What are you glorying today? What are you proud about today? Whose resume are you looking to? Whose pedigree? Are you relying on? How foolish are we? Only the Son of God, only He alone could secure so great a salvation. You see, at the cross, the Son's infinite nature as God gave His finite suffering, sufferings infinite value. They were of infinite value because the one who rendered them was infinite Himself. So that our guilt might be paid for in full. 
the power of sin defeated. You see, unlike the sacrifices of the Aaronic priesthood that had to be repeated over and over again, Jesus died once for all. Beloved, the Son is not making purification now. He made it. It's over. There's no more bloodletting. There's no more shedding of blood for sins to be cleansed. It happened once for all. It's not as each time you sin that Jesus has to die again. Nor does it say that Jesus will make purification as, as if we are left wondering if my sins, if our sins will be among those that have been purified. No, he made purification. It's finished. Everything that was required for, the, for your sins to be forgiven has been done. Nothing else is needed. It's over. It's finished. It remains only for you to repent and believe and lay hold of Jesus Christ by faith. Your greatest need, God took care of it. That alienation that you had with the triune God has now been mended. It wasn't financial. It wasn't educational. It wasn't because you had low self-esteem. No, the single greatest threat to the well-being of your soul and my soul is our sin. Our idolatry, our unbelief that has separated us from God. But in Jesus Christ, God has taken care of it. He's provided everything necessary to make it possible for sinners to, to stand now guiltless before God. Blameless. Righteous, pure, holy. Past sins. Well, what about the sins next week or tomorrow or, or later this afternoon that I will commit? They've been paid for in full. All your sins paid for in full. You see, all who believe in Jesus Christ have been purified by the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ himself on the cross. That's why the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 7, 27 says this about the Son. The Son has no need like those other high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Church, what wonder, what glory, what love. Who but the eternal Son of God could do this? Who else could hush the law's loud thunder and quench Mount Sinai's flame? Right? Now remember now, these readers who are originally reading this for the first time, they're, they're, they're trying to weigh the cost. They're, they're fishing and they're cutting bait and they're thinking, what am I going to do here? It's starting to cost me something to follow Jesus. It's no longer socially acceptable. I'm being ostracized. I'm being canceled. Because I'm not woke. Because I'm not up to speed. I'm not identifying with the accepted religion of the day. I'm identifying with Jesus of Nazareth and the cross. And he's asking them, why would you ever go back to the blood of bulls and goats that cannot cleanse your guilty con conscience? All the types and shadows were just that. They all pointed to the reality to Christ himself. Notice again, though, notice how, how rooted theologically the, the preacher is. He, he doesn't give the people a bunch of lists. He just puts before them the diamond. This is who Jesus is. Let us count the ways how he's better. He's heir. He's creator. He's the exact image of God. He's the radiance of his glory. He's the sustainer. He's the purifier of his people. Right? That's the only thing that's powerful enough to keep us persevering. But the question must be asked, well, now Jesus has died, and Jesus was buried, and Jesus rose, and Jesus ascended. 
What did Jesus do once his tasks were completed? Hebrews 10.12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's the seventh characteristic. The son is better because he now sits enthroned at God's right hand. He now sits at God's right hand. It said that the only time a working man sits is once the work is done. Have you ever noticed this? And this week I, I noticed it for the first time. Have you ever noticed as you read the Old Testament, you read particularly in the book of Exodus, as you read about the tabernacle, verses, chapters 34 to 40, more or less, do you notice and ever wondered why there are no chairs in the tabernacle? Right? You've got the altar out front, this massive altar, seven by seven. It's a square thing. It's large. It's where you'd go and you'd sacrifice. And then as you make your way into the tent of meeting, there you, you see the basin, right? You, you would wash your animal or wash your hands. You'd clean yourself because you had to come in ceremonially and clean before the triune God, right? To the Holy of Holies. And only once a year could you come. And then once you get into the holy place, not into the inner sanctum, but to the holy place, there you would find the, the candlestick and the table of showbread and the altar of incense. But then once you go beyond the curtain, you come into the Holy of Holies. There's just this ark, this funny-looking box with two rings, four rings, two on each side, where the poles would go forth. You could carry it the correct way, according to the Levitical law, the way God had prescribed. But in all of that, and then in all of the tabernacle, there are no chairs. Why were there no chairs? There were no chairs, church, because the work was never done. You you can't sit down. A working man can only sit once the work's done. There's no chairs, not even in in the temple. There's no chairs anywhere. What, what place have you ever been in where there's no chairs? The tabernacle and the temple. Listen to Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. Did you hear that? He has made you perfect forever. And the same truth is stated here in verse 3 of chapter 1. After Jesus made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Unlike the Aaronic priesthood under the old covenant who could never sit, Jesus now sits enthroned at the right hand of God, at the majesty of God. He sits enthroned as the perfect prophet, 
the perfect priest and the perfect king. He sits, church. Did you hear that? All that the Father had given him to do, he had completed. He could now take his rightful place as Son of Man, Son of God, sitting at God's right hand until the triune God, right? The triune God, as it's revealed in the Scripture, made his footstool, his enemies, his footstool. You see, the Son of God, having fully and finally made purification for sins, now sits. Now he's clothed with glory and honor. The Lord Jesus is better. He's a better priest with better blood. Sprinkles now the throne of grace. Do you see? Do you see? Do you see the glory of God? As it's revealed here in Hebrews 1. By bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayers, they strongly speak for me or plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. It is finished. The Son of God now sits. Why would you go back to a type, to a shadow, to a model? To scale when the house has now been built, when salvation has been completed. Why would you abandon him? That's why he's going to say in chapter 2, therefore, we must pay careful attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away, and you will drift away. If you're not putting before your eyes the beauty, the glory, the majesty of the one who is heir, the one who is the creator, the one who is the radiance of his glory, the one who is the exact representation of his nature, the sustainer and upholder of all things, the purifier, the one who sits at the Father's right hand, if he is not being put before your eyes every week, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, you will drift away. And you will forsake and you will leave the God you profess to love. That's why it's so imperative that you're here on Sunday morning. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together or some who are apt to do so. Today is the day of salvation, saith the word of God. Take heed lest you fall. You see, Jesus is better. And let me just drive it home. I want to drive it into your heart like Luther. I have to preach the gospel every week. Don't you have another message, Luther? Don't you have something I can do, Luther? Something I can bring? Some activity that I can participate in? Some formula for me, Luther? Give me a formula, Luther. They did. They begged him for that. And it's so tempting to want to give you five reasons for X, Y, and Z, or, or seven ways to be a better citizen or a husband or whatever. And that's appropriate at times. But if you don't see the glory of Jesus first and foremost, and if your ethics doesn't flow out of the great indicatives and the great person and work of Jesus Christ, then it's all for naught. So believer, let me drive it into your heart. Believer, you never need to fear that your sins will bring you into judgment again. You're forgiven. You never need to fear death. Death is God's servant. As our catechism says, it's the last act of sanctification that ushers you into the very presence of God. 
To be absent of the body is to be present with the Lord. Right, we had a funeral this week. This coming week, one of my dear friends is having a funeral for his grandmother. She's with the Lord. We mourn, but we mourn in the hope of the resurrection. Death is God's servant. Believer, you never live to, need to live in anxiety and fear about whether or not you've done enough. Some of you are on a Christian treadmill and you need to get off. You need to take a sledgehammer to it. Unplug it. Destroy it. Sell it at a yard sale. Spring's coming up. Get rid of it. Never again you need to be bound by someone else's expectations of you. Isn't that liberating? All the people have got so many expectations on you. Oh, if you were this kind of this guy or that guy, you can die to all of it. Who cares? Never again do you need to be bound by some man-made rules that others have set down for you. Saints, you can breathe. You can rest. You can exhale. You can actually enjoy God. Do you enjoy God? Well, I glorify God. Do you actually enjoy Him? Well, you can enjoy Him. He's done everything necessary to make it possible for you to enjoy Him. You can enjoy Him with a heart filled with joy and thanksgiving, knowing that a perfect and complete sacrifice is paid for your sins in full. Church, Jesus is better. The Son is the heir, the appointed heir, David's greatest son. The Son is the creator of all things. The Son is the radiance of the glory of God. The Son is the exact imprint of God's nature. The Son is the upholder and sustainer of all of creation and all of human history. The Son is your purifier. The Son now sits at God's right hand in heaven itself because that's the only place there is a chair. It's in heaven. It wasn't in the man-made temple and tabernacle, but it is in heaven. And Jesus ascended, and he now sits there for you. He sits at the, as the Lord, your righteousness. So doubting, saint, believe. Get your eyes off of yourself, all of your problems, and look to the one who's seated at the Father's right hand, Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask this blessing. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the Lord, our righteousness. We thank you, Father, that he is now seated, having completed the work that you gave him to do before time began, fulfilling the, the pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption, that, Father, you decreed that the Son executed, that the Holy Spirit now takes that completed work of the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, and takes that completed work and applies it to our lives, uniting us to Jesus Christ, that he has now become our righteousness, that our righteousness sits at your right hand, and we sit there in him by faith. We pray and we would ask that you give us hearts to believe these great truths 
of the beauty and the glory and the doctrine of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.